This is Audible. Silicon Guild Publishing presents a Punch Audio production of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility, written and narrated by Patty McCord, co-creator of the Netflix Culture Deck, with additional narration by Alex Hyde-White. Introduction A New Way of Working Foster Freedom and Responsibility In an executive meeting one day at Netflix, we suddenly realized that in nine months we would account for a third of the U.S. Internet bandwidth. We had grown around 30% a quarter for three quarters in a row. At the time, we were still thinking that we might be eventually as big as HBO, but not for many years. Our head of product did a quick calculation of how much bandwidth we'd need in a year if we maintained our current growth rate. He then said, You know, that would be about a third of the U.S. Internet bandwidth. We all just looked at him and blurted out in unison, What? I asked him, does anyone in the company know how to make sure we can manage that? He answered with the honesty we'd always hoped for. I don't know. In my 14 years on the executive team at Netflix, we constantly face such daunting growth challenges, sometimes existential ones and in technologies and services that we were pioneering. There was no playbook. We had to make it up. From the moment I joined Netflix, when the company had barely launched, the nature of our business and our field of competitors evolved continuously and incredibly rapidly. Our business model, the technology that drove our services, and the teams of people we needed in order to execute had to do more than keep pace. We had to anticipate changes and proactively strategize and prepare for them. We had to hire stellar talent in whole new areas of expertise and fluidly reconfigure our teams. We also had to be ready at any moment to cast aside our plans, admit mistakes, and embrace new course. The company had to perpetually reinvent itself, first figuring out how to keep our DVD-by-mail business thriving while simultaneously throwing ourselves into learning how to stream, then moving our systems to the cloud, and then beginning to create original programming. This book is not a memoir of the building of Netflix. It's a guide to building a high-performance culture that can meet the challenges of today's rapid pace of change in business. Written for team leaders at all levels. Netflix may be an especially stark example, but all companies from startups to corporate behemoths must become great adapters. They need the ability to anticipate new market demands and to pounce on remarkable opportunities and new technologies. Otherwise, the competition will simply innovate faster. Now that I am consulting with companies all over the world, from large blue chips like J. Walter Thompson to fast-growing newcomers like Warby Parker, HubSpot, and India's Hike Messenger, as well as a number of fledgling startups, I see the wider landscape of challenge vividly. It's striking how similar and pressing the fundamental problems are. Everyone wants to know the same thing. How can they create some of their own Netflix mojo? More specifically, how can they create for themselves the kind of nimble, high-performance culture that's made Netflix so successful? That's what this book is about. 
how you can draw on the lessons of what we learned at Netflix and apply the principles and practices we developed to managing your own team and company. Did we do everything right at Netflix? Not by a long shot. We had plenty of stumbles, some very public. And we didn't have a big aha moment about how to meet our challenges. We evolved a new way of working through incremental adaption, trying new things, making mistakes, beginning again, and seeing good results. Ultimately, we created a distinctive culture that supports adaptability and high performance. I'm not going to claim that tackling the challenges of rapid change is easy in any way for anyone. The good news is that we found that inculcating a core set of behaviors in people, then giving them the latitude to practice those behaviors, while actually demanding that they practice them, makes teams astonishingly energized and proactive. Such teams are the best drivers to get to where you need to go. I've laced the book with stories about how we met the challenges at Netflix, in part to make the book a lively read and listen, but also because they show how the methods we develop can be implemented. You will find the book somewhat unconventional, which, I hope you'll agree, is appropriate for a book that is largely about defying convention. One of the pillars of the Netflix culture is radical honesty, something I've loved since I was a small child growing up in Straight Talk in Texas. If you watch any of my talks that are posted online, you'll see that it is my way to speak freely, and I'm going to do so here. Please think of reading this book like engaging in lively debate. You may be annoyed by some of what I say and find yourself pushing back on certain points. I hope you'll also find yourself nodding emphatically in agreement with others. As I learned through my intense debates at Netflix, nothing is quite as much fun as a free-flowing intellectual sparring match. And I very much want reading this book to be fun. People have power. Don't take it away. The first step in adopting the practices I'll present is embracing a management mindset that overturns conventional wisdom. The fundamental lesson we learned at Netflix about success in business today is this. The elaborate, cumbersome system for managing people that was developed over the course of the 20th century is just not up to the challenges companies face in the 21st. Reed Hastings and I and the rest of the management team decided that, over time, we would explore a radical new way to manage people, a way that would allow them to exercise their full powers. We wanted all of our people to challenge us and one another vigorously. We wanted them to speak up about ideas and problems, to freely push back in front of one another and in front of us. We didn't want anyone at any level keeping vital insights and concerns to themselves. The executive team modeled this. We made ourselves accessible and we encouraged questions. We engaged in open, intense debate and made sure all of our managers knew we wanted them to do the same. Reed even staged debates between members of the executive team. We also communicated honestly and continuously about the changes the company was facing and how we were going to tackle them. We wanted everyone to understand that change would be a constant and that we would make whatever changes of plan and of personnel we thought necessary to forge ahead at high speed. We wanted people to embrace the need for change and be thrilled to drive it. We'd come to understand that the most successful organizations in this world of increasingly rapid disruption will be the ones in which everyone on every team understands, all bets are off, and everything is changing, 
and think it's great. To build that kind of company, we were intent on creating a culture of great teamwork and innovative problem solving. We wanted people to feel excited to come to work each day, not despite the challenges, but because of them. I'm not going to say that working at Netflix wasn't often extremely hair-raising. Some of the decisions we had to make were radical plunges into the unknown, and that was often truly scary. But it was also exhilarating. The Netflix culture wasn't built by developing an elaborate new system for managing people. We did the opposite. We kept stripping away policies and procedures. We realized that the prevailing approach to building teams and managing people is as outdated as product innovation was before the quickening pace of disruption demanded the development of agile, lean, and customer-centric methods. It's not that companies aren't trying all kinds of things to manage better, but most of what they're doing is either beside the point or counterproductive. Most companies are clinging to established command and control system of top-down decision-making, but trying to jazz it up by fostering employee engagement and by empowering people. Compelling but misguided ideas about best practices prevail. Bonuses and pay tied to annual performance reviews. Big HR initiative like the recent craze for lifelong learning programs. Celebrations to build camaraderie and make sure people are having fun. And for employees who are struggling, performance improvement plans. These foster empowerment and with that comes engagement, which leads to job satisfaction and employee happiness, and that leads to high performance or so the thinking goes. I used to believe this, too. I started my career in HR at Sun Microsystems and then at Borland Software, implementing the whole gamut of conventional practices. I negotiated all kinds of tantalizing bonuses. I dutifully rallied my teams for the dreaded performance review season and coached managers through the performance improvement process. When I ran diversity programs at Sun, I even spent $100,000 on a Cinco de Mayo party. But over time, I saw that all of those policies and systems were enormously costly, time-consuming, and unproductive. Even more important, I saw they were premised on false assumptions about human beings, that most people must be incentivized in order to really throw themselves into their work, and that they need to be told what to do. The best practices that have been developed on the basis of these premises are, ironically, disincentivizing and disempowering. Yes, engaged employees probably deliver higher quality performance, but too often engagement is treated as the end game, rather than serving customers and getting results. And the standard beliefs about how and why people are engaged in their work miss the true drivers of work passion. As for empowerment, I simply hate that word. The idea is well-intentioned, but the truth is, there's so much concern about empowering people only because the prevailing way of managing them takes their power away. We didn't set out to take it away. We just over-processed everything. We've hamstrung people. What I came to understand deeply and in a new way once I made my way into scrappier startup world is people have power. A company's job isn't to empower people. It's to remind people that they walk in the door with power and to create the conditions for them to exercise it. Do that, and you will be astonished by the great work that they will do for you.
Managing people like managing innovation. As I introduce the alternative management methods we developed at Netflix, I'm going to challenge all of the basic premises of management today. That it is about building loyalty and retention and career progression and implementing structures to ensure employee engagement and happiness. None of that is true. None of that is the job of management. Here's my radical proposition. A business leader's job is to create great teams that do amazing work on time. That's it. That's the job of management. At Netflix, we did away with virtually all of the hidebound policies and procedures. We didn't do it in one fell swoop. We did it experimentally, step by step, over the course of years. We approached developing the culture in the same way we approached innovating the business. I understand that such a radical transformation is simply not feasible for some companies, and many team leaders are not free to do away with policies and procedures. But every company and every manager is free to institute the practices we used to instill the core set of behaviors that made the Netflix culture so limber. The Discipline of Freedom and Responsibility Doing away with policies and procedures and giving people agency didn't at all mean that the culture became a free-for-all. As we stripped away bureaucracy, we coached all of our people at all levels and on all teams to be disciplined about a fundamental set of behaviors. I've often said that while I've removed the words policy and procedure from my vocabulary, I love discipline. My whole career, I've gotten along well with engineers because engineers are very, very disciplined. When engineers start to whine about a process you're trying to implement, you really want to dig into what's bothering them, because they hate senseless bureaucracy and stupid process, but they don't mind discipline at all. The most important thing to understand about transforming a culture, whether that of a team or a whole company, is that it isn't a matter of simply professing a set of values and operating principles. It's a matter of identifying the behaviors that you would like to see become consistent practices and then instilling the discipline of actually doing them. We fully and consistently communicated to everyone at Netflix the behaviors we expected them to be disciplined about. And that started with the executive team and every manager. We were so intent that every single employee understand our philosophy and the behaviors we wanted them to execute on that Reed started writing a PowerPoint about them, which I and many other members of the management team also contributed to. It ultimately became known as the Netflix Culture Deck. You may have read it. When Reed posted it on the web several years ago, he had no idea it would go viral, with more than 15 million views and counting. We hadn't created it for broadcast. We created it as an internal company document using it to communicate the culture to new hires and to make sure we were perfectly clear about how we wanted them to operate. We also stressed that it laid out not only what we expected of them, but also what they should expect of us. The deck wasn't written in one fell swoop, and it wasn't written by just Reed and me. It was a living, breathing, growing, changing set of realizations we came to as we built the culture with leaders from all around the company making contributions. Reading the deck would be a great compliment to reading this book, 
One of the reasons I've written this book is that I get so many questions when I speak and in my consulting about the deck and how to actually enact its concepts. I've thought hard about that, and I've boiled down the lessons we've learned about how to instill these principles and behaviors in teams. Not all of the specific practices implemented at Netflix and outlined in the deck apply to every team or company. Even at Netflix, the culture varied in many respects from department to department. Marketing, for example, was run in many ways that were quite different from the management of the engineering groups. But there was a core set of practices that underpinned the culture. We wanted open, clear, and constant communication about the work to be done and the challenges being faced, not only for a manager's own team, but for the company as a whole. We wanted people to practice radical honesty, telling one another and us the truth in a timely fashion and ideally face-to-face. We wanted people to have strong, fact-based opinions and to debate them avidly and test them rigorously. We wanted people to base their actions on what was best for the customer and the company, not on attempts to prove themselves right. We wanted hiring managers to take the lead in preparing their teams for the future by making sure they had high performers with the right skills in every position. We asked all managers, starting at the top with our executive team, to model these behaviors. And by doing so, they showed everyone on their teams how to embrace them as well. The prospect of getting teams to operate according to these requirements may seem daunting. More than a few Netflixers I've talked with as I've worked on this book have commented that they were reluctant about one or another of these practices such as giving totally honest feedback to people face-to-face. They have also recalled that as they forced themselves to go ahead, they saw how responsive their people were and how dramatically their team's performance improved. The key is to proceed incrementally. You can start with small steps and then keep building. Pick a practice that you think fits your group and business issues particularly well and start there. For leadership teams, start with one department or group you think is best suited or in the most need of change. Creating a culture is an evolutionary process. Think of it as an experimental journey of discovery. That's how we thought about building the culture at Netflix. Which step you start with is no matter. What matters is starting. With the pace of change in business today, there is, as the saying goes, no time like the present. Chapter 1. The greatest motivation is contributing to success. Treat people like adults. Great teams are made when every single member knows where they're going and will do anything to get there. Great teams are not created with incentives, procedures, and perks. They are created by hiring talented people who are adults and want nothing more than to tackle a challenge and then communicating to them clearly and continuously about what that challenge is. The prevailing philosophy of management today is that if you want great productivity from people, you must first motivate them with incentives and then make sure they know you're looking over their shoulders to keep them accountable. So many companies have departmental objectives and team objectives and individual objectives and a formal annual review process for measuring performance against them. That structure, that waterfall, is very logical, very reasonable. 
but it's no longer remotely adequate. Saying to employees, if you do X, you will be rewarded with Y, assumes a static system. Yet no business today is static. More fundamentally, while rewards are great, there's no better reward than making a significant contribution to meeting a challenge. I'm a big fan of goals. Couldn't be a bigger fan. It's the usual management approach to achieving them that's so wrong. Typically, the timeframes we set and the complexity of the structure created for leading teams and monitoring results make achieving goals harder than it needs to be. Great teams relish a challenge. When I consult to startups, I'm most excited about working with those who found that their venture money is starting to dry up and they're facing really tough challenges. It's tackling those that makes truly great teams. Great teams are made when things are hard. Great teams are made when you have to dig deep. When I'm hiring, I look for someone who gets really excited about the problems we have to solve. You want them to wake up in the morning thinking, God, this is hard. I want to do this. Being given a great problem to tackle and the right colleagues to tackle it with is the best incentive of all. One of my mantras is, problem finders, they're cheap. Most people think that's a really important role in the company. I'm the one who found that problem. Okay, good for you, but did you solve it? You want people who absolutely love problem solving. Neil Blumenthal and Dave Gilboa, co-founders of Warby Parker, told me that it's especially fun building the company now because it's getting really complicated as they launch brick-and-mortar stores. They've got to integrate the experience of the stores with the experience of the online service, and that's a real challenge. No wonder the brand is so successful. Some leaders might opt to coast on the growth already achieved, but they're thrilled to be facing even harder problems. Ask any very successful person what their fondest memories of their career are, and they will inevitably tell you about an early period of struggle or some remarkably difficult challenge they had to overcome. I had a great conversation about this with Tom Willerer, a former VP of product innovation at Netflix. He's moved over to Coursera, the innovative online education provider, as the chief product officer. When I asked him what he's loved about helping build a company, he lit up, launching into a story about the seemingly impossible feat his team had pulled off. At the start of the fiscal year, the executive team had determined that the company had to double its revenue by the end of the year. He and the product team decided they'd meet the goal by launching 50 new courses by that September, which he described as a Hail Mary pass. Two weeks before the launch date for the new courses, they still weren't sure they could pull it off. They did, and the strategy worked beautifully. They saw an immediate hockey stick uptick in earnings. Tom told me he joined a company that he wasn't even sure would exist in five years because of the hunger to climb a mountain. He said, I feel sometimes like I'm going to lose a limb doing this, but it'll be worth it because I'm doing something important and adding something to the world, and that is what drives people. I could not agree with him more. I believe that is the way most people fervently want to feel about their work. The prospect of helping to create a company that would provide employees that opportunity was the reason I joined Netflix, despite thinking I wouldn't go to another startup. When I got a call at 2 in the morning back in 1997, I figured it must be Reed Hastings. No one else ever called me at 2 in the morning. He said, Were you sleeping? And I said, Yeah, of course I was. I'm normal. What's up? 
Reed was not one to let a little sleep get in the way of a good idea, and he had shared many of them with me late at night when I worked with him at his startup, Pure Software. After he sold Pure, he'd gone back to school, and I had started consulting. We both lived in the same town, so we'd kept in close touch. He said he was going to join Netflix, and I told him, Sounds like a good career move. Why are you telling me this at two in the morning? Then he asked if I wanted to join him, and I answered, No way. I'd had a great time at Pure, but I was done with the crazy highs and lows and insane hours. I also didn't see how a tiny little company renting DVDs through the mail was going to succeed. I mean, really? Netflix was going to put Blockbuster out of business? But then Reed said, Wouldn't it be great if we created a company that we really both wanted to work at? Now I was intrigued. At Pure, I'd come in after the model had been fashioned. The opportunity to join in the invention this time was tantalizing. If we did that, I asked him, how would you know it was great? He said, oh, I'd want to come to work every day and solve these problems with these people. I love the spirit of that. I think Reed expressed in that statement exactly what people want most from work, to be able to come in and work with the right team of people, colleagues they trust and admire, and to focus like crazy on doing a great job together. Policies and structure can't anticipate needs and opportunities. If you look at the most successful companies of the last decade or so, many of them are Internet firms with teams that work very collaboratively and organically. What do I mean by organically? I mean their goals and the ways they allocate time and resources, as well as the problems they're focusing on and approaches to solving them, are constantly adapting to the demands of the business and customer. They're growing, changing organisms. They aren't rigid structures bound by predetermined mandates about objectives, staff, or budget. Before Netflix, I worked for Reed at Pure Software, which was my first startup. I felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. I loved the high energy and the intense focus on innovation. As the head of HR, I still introduced policies and procedures, but I began doubting the conventional wisdom. Because the company was so much smaller than others I'd worked at, I began to learn more about the nitty-gritty of business, and I could get to know more employees. As I became familiar with software engineers in particular and observed how they work, I realized it's a misconception that more people make better stuff. With our teams at Pure and all around Silicon Valley, I could see the power of small, unencumbered teams. The typical approach to growth in business is to add more people and structure and to impose more fixed budgetary goals and restraints. But my experiences at fast-growth companies that successfully scaled showed me that the leanest process is possible and a strong culture of discipline were far superior, if for no other reason than their speed. Later at Netflix, we had a striking realization about this after we had a big, very painful layoff. In 2001, we had to lay off a third of the company. The dot-com bubble had burst, and the economy had gone bust with it, and we were on the brink of bankruptcy. It was brutal. Then that Christmas, the cost of DVD players dropped, and they became the big gift, and the business took off. Now we had to do twice as much work with two-thirds of the people. We couldn't hire anybody except people to put DVDs in envelopes. We had so many new customers that we didn't have enough inventory, and we had to put every tiny cent of profit we had into buying more product. And yet, everyone was much happier. 
I was carpooling to work with Reed one day, and I said to him, Why is this so much fun? I can't wait to get to work. I don't want to go home at night. We're working so hard, but it's great. What is it about what we're doing? And he said, Let's figure it out. Our first big realization was that the remaining people were the highest performers, and it taught us that the best thing you can do for employees is to hire only high performers to work alongside of them. It's a perk far better than foosball or free sushi or even a big signing bonus or the holy grail of stock options. Excellent colleagues, a clear purpose, and well-understood deliverables. That's the powerful combination. When I saw the light. Reed and I and the executive team were determined to figure out how to sustain the creative spirit and extraordinary level of performance our teams were demonstrating as the company rapidly scaled up. We were going to have to start hiring fast, and we wanted to ensure that we maintained our exceptionally high talent density, the high quotient of top performers that had seen us through the downturn so deftly. We began to systematically explore how we could free people up to do their best work, while also providing the right amount of guidance and feedback to keep teams on track, yet be able to dramatically change course if necessary. This is when I learned in a much deeper way about the drivers of high-performance innovation. For the first time in my career as a member of the executive team, I was directly engaged in developing the product itself. It wasn't a highly technical, complex software product as at Pure. We were an entertainment company, and I was a huge movie fan. I was also, as I would often say to tweak the engineers, normal. I was the customer. I became fascinated how we were developing the product. We were huge fans of A-B testing, rigorous experimentation, and open debate about what was right for the product. In product development, if something doesn't work, you get rid of it. I realized we could apply that same principle to managing people. I understood that part of the reason large teams are crippled in their ability to innovate and move fast is because it's hard work to manage them. Companies build infrastructure to make sure people are doing the right things. But the teams I saw that accomplished great stuff just knew what they most needed to accomplish. They didn't need elaborate procedures and certainly not incentives. Most technologists will tell you that a small team of brilliant engineers will do better work than a large team of hard-working ones. I started thinking, why would that be true just for engineers? Is it because they're so special and smart? At that time, as much as I love engineers, I was pretty tired of their being treated as special, smart people. To my mind, people across the full spectrum of functions would love nothing more than to be free to tackle projects in the way they think will produce the best results in the shortest possible time. So often, though, they are thwarted by management second-guessing them or by inefficient systems. I wondered, what if people in marketing and finance and in my own group, Human Resources, were allowed to unleash their full powers? They would operate like high-performance engineering teams. In retrospect, that was the moment I left behind traditional HR and took on a new role as the COO of the culture and the chief product manager of people. I began to scrutinize our organizational culture and design. At that point, we had created departments, and Reed and I agreed that as much as we could, we wanted to keep their management flat because that gave us so much speed. 
After we had to let go of many middle managers in our big layoff, we noticed that everyone moved much faster without all those layers of opinions and approvals. Now we decided that maybe people could move even faster and get more done if we started doing away with policies and procedures. We analyzed every single truism and best practice, just as we analyzed the product. Often when Reed would propose a cut, it sounded so crazy I needed to sleep on it. But as we kept trying things, we kept getting good results. Take our no vacation policy policy, which has received a great deal of press. We told people to take the time off they thought was appropriate, just discussing what they needed with their managers. And do you know what happened? People took a week or two in the summer and time for the holidays and some days here and there to watch their kids' ball games, just as before. Trusting people to be responsible with their time was one of the early steps in giving them back their power. I discovered I loved throwing away convention. One of my favorite days was when I stood up in front of the company and said, I'm going to get rid of our expense policy, and I'm going to get rid of the travel policy, and I want you to just use good judgment about how you spend the company's money. If it turns out to be a disaster, like the lawyers tell us it will, we'll go back to the old system. Again, we found that people didn't abuse the freedom. We saw that we could treat people like adults, and they loved it. I started to challenge the conventions around hiring people, too. With the company growing like mad and the nature of the business changing so fast, we could see streaming rapidly approaching. We knew we had to build an organization that would always have a really strong talent pipeline. At the time, when I hired a manager, they typically wanted to work with their favorite headhunter, and I knew I had to change that. We needed to be more strategic. I could have tried to get the five best headhunters in Silicon Valley to work for me exclusively, but I decided to throw out the traditional recruiting practice and create a headhunting firm within the company. Instead of hiring people who had worked in other companies internally, I started hiring people who had worked for headhunting firms to build that capability inside. Because we had that competency, I could tell a manager, it's okay if you lose a couple of people because we can get great new people for you fast. We also challenged the conventional practices for crafting both company-wide and team strategy. We had been creating an annual roadmap and doing annual budgeting, but those processes took up so much time, and the effort wasn't really worthwhile because we were wrong all the time. I mean, really, we were making it up. Whatever our projections were, we knew they'd be wrong in six months, if not three. So we just stopped doing annual planning. All the time we saved gave us more time to do quarterly planning, and then we went to rolling three-quarter budgets because that was as far out as we thought we could ostensibly predict. We experimented with every way we could think of to liberate teams from unnecessary rules and approvals. As we kept methodically analyzing what was working and how we could keep freeing people to be more creative, productive, and happier, we came to refer to our new way of working as the freedom and responsibility culture. We worked for years to develop it, and the evolution continues today. I'll describe the additional components in the chapters to come. They were all built on the realization that the most important job of management is to focus really intently on the building of great teams. If you hire the talented people you need, and you provide them with the tools and information they need to get you where you need to go, they will want nothing more than to do stellar work for you and keep you limber. 
The most recent testament to the power of this approach is the speed with which Netflix has expanded its original programming while also achieving popular and critical success. Ted Sarandos, head of content since the earliest days, told me that freeing high performers from constraints has been vital to building up the original content business so rapidly. The team has doubled their creation of new content every year, and when we talked, they were producing 30 scripted series, had 12 feature films, 55 documentary projects, 51 stand-up comedy shows, and 45 children's shows in production. On top of that, they had just gone global, expanding to 13 countries at once. What's so amazing is not only the speed with which the team has created so much content, but also the diversity of types of content. Ted's group has been able to cater to all sorts of tastes, with offerings ranging from the highbrow series The Crown to the wildly crowd-pleasing but hardly critically acclaimed Fuller House. The team has even entered the fray of unscripted series such as The Ultimate Beastmaster, a competition show with contestants from six different countries, each speaking their own language. Ted says that his core approach has been asking his team to focus on finding the best creative talent with the skills to execute, then giving those creators the freedom to realize their vision. That has been the greatest differentiator between Netflix and the Hollywood studios, he says, allowing his team to compete so effectively for top creative talent and to launch such breakthrough shows. Creators love that his team doesn't micromanage the production process, barraging them with notes. Ted's group also doesn't use the traditional pilot system, instead greenlighting creators to produce full seasons of episodes. They put their confidence in people, who've proven they can produce. And hand-in-hand with the freedom those people are given is the understanding that it's they who are accountable for the quality of the shows. They have risen to the occasion. By contrast, the traditional Hollywood way has been creation by committee, with accountability spread too thin. Ted told me that being steeped in the Netflix culture also allowed him to feel comfortable freeing his team from constraints they might have imposed on themselves. For example, They broke their own model for bringing in new shows with only their third original series. Because they weren't using pilot testing, they had decided to bring in only series that already had well-developed scripts and the acting talent lined up. But then, Genji Kohan, the creator of the Showtime series Weeds, proposed Orange is the New Black before any scripts were written. Ted and his team were so impressed by her vision for the show and had such confidence based on their track record with weeds that they very shrewdly threw their rule out. Ask yourself, if you were to treat managing people the way you treat managing product, wouldn't you also want to approach the entire system differently? If you started not with best practices, but with what it takes to deliver a fabulous end product to your customers, what system would you invent? Would you want your people to be more agile? Wouldn't you want to be able to rely on their being proactive and staying ahead of the curve because they know that they've got to help you steer the way? Wouldn't you rather be devoting the full measure of your time and attention to making sure they have the resources and information they need to do that for you and discussing challenges with them, getting their best input and their pushback rather than processing forms and approvals and policing them? I'm not at all saying that teams don't need direction setting and coaching. They do but the ways in which they're given direction and feedback are often far from optimal. 
At the same time, we were experimenting at Netflix with eliminating processes. We were also experimenting with better ways of communicating where the company was heading, what goals to be driving toward, and how people were performing. In brief, the greatest team achievements are driven by all team members understanding the ultimate goal and being free to creatively problem solve in order to get there. The strongest motivator is having great team members to work with, people who trust one another to do great work and to challenge one another. The most important job of managers is to ensure that all team members are such high performers who do great work and challenge one another. You should operate with the leanest possible set of policies, procedures, rules, and approvals, because most of these top-down mandates hamper speed and agility. Discover how lean you can go by steadily experimenting. If it turns out a policy or procedure was needed, reinstate it. Constantly seek to refine your culture, just as you constantly work to improve your products and services. Questions to consider. As you survey your company-wide policies and procedures, ask, what is the purpose of this policy or procedure? Does it achieve that result? Are there any approval mechanisms you can eliminate? What percentage of its time does management spend on problem-solving and team-building? Have you done a cost-benefit analysis of the incentives and perks you offer employees? Could you replace approvals and permissions with analysis of spending patterns and a focus on accuracy and predictability? Is your decision-making system clear and communicated widely? And now, Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Every single employee should understand the business. Communicate constantly about the challenge. When I advise doing away with as many procedures and approvals as possible, I am inevitably asked, but how? How can this be possible? What takes the place of rules, processes, approvals, bureaucracy, and permissions? The answer? Clear, continuous communication about the context of the work to be done. Telling people, here's exactly where we are, and here's what we're trying to accomplish. The more time managers spend communicating and elaborating and being transparent about the job to be done, about the challenges the business is facing, and the larger competitive context, the less important policies, approvals, and incentives are. Even if you're not at liberty to do away with policies, procedures, bonuses, and formal annual reviews, you can implement much clearer, more open, honest, and continuous communication about the business challenges and how people are meeting them. This facilitates more timely improvements in performance, as well as more limber adjustments of goals. It also encourages people to ask questions and share ideas, which can lead to extremely valuable insights about how to improve your product, your service to your customers, and the business itself. I came to appreciate how important it is for every single employee to truly understand the business when I myself began to learn deeply about the business at Netflix. People don't want to be entertained at work. They want to learn. When I was at Sun, we had 370 people in HR. 370 people. And virtually all of them were divorced from the business. They couldn't tell you what we made. 
We were doing initiatives and offsides and celebrations. We were half entertainment and half happy face HR. It was really fun, but somehow empty. We always wanted more respect and recognition. I became jazzed about my work in a new way when I became integrally involved in growing a company at Netflix. When I accepted the job, it was on the condition that I would not be siloed off as the HR lady. I would report directly to Reed and be part of the executive team. That meant I had to step up and learn deeply about how the business worked. As I did that, I came to understand the enormous value of every single employee at the company getting the same understanding. Reed and I had both been inspired by the argument for open book management in Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham's book, The Great Game of Business. The importance of transparency was driven home for me by our dramatic shift from the DVD-by-mail model to the subscription model. One morning, when Reed and I were carpooling to work, he started passionately talking about changing from a pay-per-rental service to a subscription model, getting all fired up about it. I told him, okay, all right, I can hear it in your voice. I know what happens when you get like this. You are sure you're right about this, aren't you? I knew that most employees weren't going to like this change, but I also knew that Reed was going to do it anyway because he believed it was the right thing for the business. It was clear that the change would be wrenching. It involved much more than simply changing the terms on the website. We had to change the shipping model and the billing model and the whole structure of the company, its departments, its supervisors, and salespeople. We also had to bring in a lot of new people who could build up our technical capabilities for serving subscribers and making good use of the tsunami of user data we'd be accumulating. And we were facing intense competition for them from our biggest competitor, which was a hundred times bigger than we were, Blockbuster. The beautiful thing for me was that because the shift in the business was so drastic, I had to focus very intensively on two things. First, I had to deeply understand the new business model and what was at stake. Subscription is a numbers race, and revenue only occurs over time after an upfront investment. I appreciated what a very big bet it was. We'd have to spend considerable money to sign up a first group of subscribers, which was an investment in getting more customers, and those new customers would allow us to pay for the next expansion. This is the fundamental Netflix model. Pay up front for benefits in future years. At this stage in our growth, that considerable upfront expense meant that we didn't have much time to make the model work. Second, the urgency of getting it right meant that I had to help everyone else in the company understand the new business model, too. At that time, the only model any of us knew included due dates and late fees. When Reed proposed a subscription without due dates and late fees, it was truly scary. After all, late fees were the gas and Blockbuster's engine. When we said we weren't going to charge them, everybody in the company was asking, how's that going to work? I fell in love with being a business person, and I didn't want to be happy-faced HR den mother anymore. I also fell in love with explaining very clearly and fully to everyone in the company why we were making the decisions we were, how they could best participate in achieving our goals, and what the obstacles would be. My aha moment reminded me of when my son was six and playing soccer. My husband was the coach, and I'd go to lots of practices. Watching the kids was hysterical. They'd just clump around the ball. 
I asked my husband in the car on the way to the team's first game, So, what's your strategy for the game? He said, Well, I was going to really attempt to have everybody moving down the field the same direction at the same time. I responded, You know, I think that's achievable. And he said, Well, but in the second half, they've got to go the other way. The World Cup fell later in that season. I had the kids over to watch. When they saw the view of the game from the blimp, they realized, Oh, that's what a pass looks like. Business is no different. People need to see the view from the C-suite in order to feel truly connected to the problem-solving that must be done at all levels and on all teams, so that the company is spotting issues and opportunities in every corner of the business and effectively acting on them. The irony is that most companies have invested so much in training programs of all sorts and spent so much time and effort to incentivize and measure performance but they fail to actually explain to all of their employees how their business runs. The Heartbeat of Communication Of course, as a business grows more complex, communicating about how it works, let alone about the course of the future, also becomes more complicated. Working out how to do this, and for company leaders and HR executives, coaching all managers to do it and do it consistently and continuously, takes time. The key is to establish what I call a strong heartbeat of communication, and that takes experimentation and practice. For a time, Reed and I would meet with every 10 new hires in the room and go through a PowerPoint, which was our starting point in creating the culture deck. We'd say, this is your cheat sheet. This is what you should expect from one another and absolutely expect from your management. Over time, we developed a new employee college. For one whole day each quarter, every head of every department would make an hour-long presentation on the important issues and developments in their part of the business. The idea for the college actually came from Cindy Holland, who is now VP of Content Acquisition Original Series. She and I were backstage watching a set of management presentations the executive team was giving to a group of investors. She realized that she was learning a great deal, and she turned to me and asked, Why do we do all this hard work for a bunch of strangers, but don't do it for ourselves? So we rolled it out for everybody. Netflixers will recall with a kind of awe that taking in all that information at New Employee College was like drinking from a fire hose. They heard detailed presentations that included the metrics and deliverables of each department. This not only gave employees a deep understanding of our business, but also introduce them to the heads of the different parts of the business. Better still, they could ask those people questions. Ensure that communication flows both up and down. It's vital that communication go both ways. People must be able to ask questions and offer critiques and ideas. Ideally, they should be able to do so with all managers up to the CEO. At New Employee College, as we started the proceedings, we'd say to the participants, you will get out of this day what you put into it. If you don't ask questions, you won't get answers. I look back now and realize this was crucial early stage setting for success of the company. It gave people at all levels license to freely ask for clarification, whether about something they were expected to do or about a decision made by management. Not only did this mean they were better informed, but over time it instilled throughout the company a culture of curiosity. 
That meant that managers often gained important insights because someone had asked a really good question. Here's a great example. During New Employee College, Ted Sarandis was explaining what's called windowing of content. That term refers to the traditional system that developed for feature film distribution. A movie would first come out in theaters, then go to hotels, then to DVD, and at that point, Netflix could bid to pick it up. During his Q&A, an engineer asked Ted, Why does this windowing of content happen like that? It seems stupid. Ted recalls that that question stopped him cold. He realized that although it was convention, he really didn't know why, and he answered frankly, I don't know. He told me that that question stuck with him and that it made me challenge everything about the windowing of content, and years later it contributed to my complete comfort with releasing all episodes of a series at once, even though no one had ever done that in television. Never underestimate the value of the ideas and the questions that employees at all levels may surprise you with. Everyone working for you at all levels can understand your business. I expect you've had the experience of talking to someone on your team about a business issue and being asked a question that makes you think, this person is clueless. Well, the next time that happens, I want you to say to yourself, wait, right. This person is clueless. He doesn't know what I know, so I have to inform him. When I would talk with a team leader at Netflix about a team member who needed more help in understanding a problem, which, given the fast-moving and technical nature of so much of the business, happened regularly, sometimes I'd get pushback. They'd say something like, I tried to explain it to him, but he's too stupid to listen. My answer was always, well, then you made it too complicated to understand. The rule I would give them was this, explain it as though you're explaining it to your mother. This was because often through the years, when I'd talk to my mom about some HR initiative I was spearheading, speaking fluent HR gobbledygook, she'd say to me, honey, that just sounds stupid. She was always right. Coming up with simple yet robust ways to explain every aspect of the business isn't easy, but it pays huge rewards. To drive this home when I consult, I often ask managers of companies with a customer service group, how much do you think your customer service representatives understand how your business works? Do they appreciate the most pressing issues facing the business? How much do you think they know about how their work contributes to the bottom line? And I mean really know, meaning the numbers. Now, how often do you think companies drop the ball when it comes to customer service? Despite all the talk about improving the customer experience, the research offers a wealth of appalling data. Reportedly, 78% of consumers have failed to complete a purchase or other transaction because of a poor service experience. And the cost to businesses in the United States has been estimated at $62 billion annually. Research also shows that word of bad customer experiences spreads to twice as many people as that of good experiences. This is a problem that must still be by and large, be solved by people. Despite attempts to offer customer service through computer bots or pre-programmed FAQs or messaging systems, face-to-face -face or voice-to-voice -voice service is far and away most effective. Any company with a customer service organization wants those people to be highly engaged. 
and the first step is to teach them how to read the company's P&L. Of course, generally they are the last people the P&L would be shown to. After all, most of them don't stay long, right? They're the lowest on the totem pole. Yet, all business success is fundamentally driven by word-of-mouth marketing. And the people who are in direct contact with customers must understand that their every interaction with a customer leads to that person telling another person, for free, either to use the company's product or service or not to. Everyone in customer service from day one should understand exactly how the experience they provide customers directly impacts the bottom line. Making that clear isn't difficult. Every company has calculated its cost of customer acquisition, and each person who becomes a customer on another customer's recommendation saves the company that amount of money. Every company can share that information with service representatives as part of bringing them on board. When I give this advice about sharing business details, I sometimes get the response that only smart people can understand this information, and only smart people want it. I find that there's a bias among executives that this is all MBA stuff, and that those people wouldn't be interested or couldn't get it. My answer? Then don't hire people who are that stupid. Better yet, don't assume that people are stupid. Assume instead that if they are doing stupid things, they are either uninformed or misinformed. But surely employees need to be at a higher level before they're told so much about the down and dirty of the business, no? What if the department's in trouble? What if the company is struggling to build a market for a big new product? Won't they be freaked out? And can they really be trusted with so much information? Of course, some information must be kept private, but you can absolutely convey the intensity of the competition you're up against and share the major challenges being faced. It's ironic how little information about strategy, operations, and results is generally shared with employees throughout companies. After all, public companies share that information with the whole world these days. Why should the investors on earnings calls know more about what's happening in your business than most of the people working in it? I think it would be great if companies held the equivalent of an earnings call for all employees. In fact, why not have them listen to the actual earnings calls? If your people aren't informed by you, there's a good chance they'll be misinformed by others. If you don't tell them how the business is doing, what your strategy is, the challenges you're facing, and what market analysts think of how you're doing, then they'll get the information elsewhere, either from colleagues who will often be equally ill-informed, or from the web, which loves nothing so much as a rumor of doom or juicy conspiracy theory. Team coaches are the model, not guidance counselors, professors, or entertainers. So many companies spend so much money on and ask their employees to devote so much time away from their jobs for formal training classes. Much of this time, money and effort is misplaced. As sports coaches will tell you, there's no better way to learn how to perform than to be in the game. A while back, I was consulting to a young company I love, and the learning and development head told me that their younger people needed to learn to be better managers. I asked, what do they need to know how to do? She answered, well, they need to know how to be better managers. I said, specifically doing what? And she said, management. I pressed, 
But what part? She responded, Well, we're going to have a full curriculum with conflict management and interpersonal communication. Those are probably the two most popular classes in the training canon, and I'm sure they've helped some people become better managers. But if I could pick one course to teach 